Welcome to Confabulation, the podcast. I'm Matt Goldberg, and these are stories, true as we can tell them. In the Hello, everyone. Welcome to Confabulation, the podcast. I'm Matt Goldberg. And I'm Deb Van Slet. Welcome. The theme of trust, that's what we're exploring today. What, yeah, what are your thoughts on that, Matt? Trust is one of those themes, I just, I love it. Because when you talk about those things that you have faith or, or believe in, those people, those conventions, it really comes to the heart of one of my key questions in storytelling. Is this a story about transformation or change? Is this a story about you diverting your life as a result of some key belief being questioned, challenged, overturned? Or is this a story of confirmation where you know you are on the right path, where you dig your heels in? I love that question. I ask my students a lot about what drives them to tell a given story or another. And if they're not sure, I think about what does this say about you? Is this a story of affirmation or a story of uh, transformation? And trust is a really great way to get to the bottom of that. What do you really believe in anyway? And so we get a lot of these stories where people's uh, faith in others, where their, their trust in others is really shaken to its core. And I feel like we get a little bit of that in these stories today. Yeah, we do. And then there's also, um, maybe in the second story, Jeff's story, there is something about um, trust in himself or in, in his instincts. Maybe that goes for Jane's as well, come to think of it. But because they go together, you know, mm. the trust that you have in others is going to be based on some kind of trust of yourself, your instincts. What story are you bringing to the podcast table today? I am so excited to bring um, the first story from Jane O'Farity uh, here in Montreal. Jane has told a bunch of stories at Confabulation now, but this was the first. Uh, she told this in April of 2018. The theme was playing politics. A few things to know about Jane. Uh, Jane is originally from Ireland, uh, came here to Montreal in the winter of 2016. I respect the courage of anyone who comes to Montreal in the winter. Well done, Jane. So here's Jane playing politics April 2018. 18 at the Phi Center. So, it's 1998 and I'm six years old. I'm playing football with my brother in the back garden of my aunt's house in West Belfast. It's a typical Irish day. The sun is kind of shining, but those grey clouds up above are threatening to rain. We, when we rushed outside, I left my mum and my aunt at the kitchen table gossiping over hot tea and store-bought cakes. And there's this tall green head surrounding us, keeping us separate from the outside world. As I said, it's a very grey suburban afternoon, but as a six-year-old I'm starting to realise that these kind of calm days don't really exist in Northern Ireland, certainly not in the 1990s. I don't really have the words to describe what Belfast is or the situation that's going on there at that age, um, my mum grew up in West Belfast, which is the Catholic side, but she settled in the Republic of Ireland when she met my dad and raised her family there. So I've lived in the Republic of Ireland, but I visit Belfast every so often to see my family. Having said that, on those few occasions that I've been around Belfast City, those armoured cars, 
those barbed wire fences and those murals of masked freedom fighters tell me that this place is just different. I've heard adults talk in hushed tones about the troubles before, the, the conflict between Catholics and Protestants, and even though I don't really know the words Catholic and Protestant or what they mean, I have experienced the troubles just once before I was six years old. It was when I was three and I was in a supermarket with my mom and uh, the shop assistants kind of gently but firmly started cheering us out of the frozen food section and out to the car park. And I, no one was really saying anything or communicating. So when we were out there, I asked, Mom, what's going on? And she just said in her very everyday voice, oh, that was a bomb scare. And I don't know what shocked me more, that statement, or what she followed it up with, which was, so we don't have anything in for dinner tonight. Would you like a Chinese or an Indian? And yeah, but it was something that was never really spoken about, but that we were all kind of subconsciously aware of, even as kids. But back in 1998, when I'm six years old, three years later after that event, I'm playing football with my brother in my aunt's back garden, and I feel so safe. So I end up clumsily kicking the ball way too hard, and it speeds past my brother and right into the back of that tall green hedge. Since my brother's closer, he goes and pick, tries to get it back, laughing all the way. But then the laughter stops, and I realize he's been in that hedge for a couple of seconds too long, I breathe in, not out of concern for my brother, but more out of frustration. I'm at that age where I really relish calling my brother an idiot at any given opportunity, <laughs> and this is gold. So, oh my God, he can't even get a ball back. Do I have to do everything? Ugh. Classic older child syndrome. But then there's a piercing scream, and I see my brother crying, rushing out of the hedge, all the way to my aunt's back door, banging and banging and banging until she lets him in. And then when she does, I'm alone. And I'm scared, but not spooked enough to be frozen to the spot. And I want my ball back, so I wander slowly towards the hedge again. And I bend down, and I peer through the bush. Next thing I know, I'm staring at a British soldier with a gun. And he's staring right back at me. He's covered in smudged camouflage, and I can only really see the whites of his eyes and the outline of the gun. And I'm terrified. I scream and I yell and I flee and I don't care if my hair is getting caught in the bush. I just need to get it out of there as soon as possible. So I speed back to the back door of my aunt's house and I wrestle with the, the handle and she lets me in. And I look at my mom who's on, in the living room and she's just after calming my brother down. And then she sees me, her daughter in absolute hysterics and she kind of breathes out like she's physically deflating. Because I think one day she did want to tell us about the troubles and the conflict in Northern Ireland. I think she did want to tell us what was going on in no uncertain terms. But she wanted to wait until we were old enough to understand or far away enough that it wouldn't really upset us. She really didn't want it to be today. So with no other choice, she sits us down and tries to explain the war between Catholics and Protestants and why the British Army send troops here to sort of keep the peace. And she's using her cheery voice, which is so inappropriate, but um, <laughs> she's like, did you know your granddad was actually in the British Army and he was a Catholic as well and didn't bother him at all. And actually he was really brave. The Queen gave him a medal at all, even though he's Irish, it's not gas. <laughs> but she tells us that there's really nothing to be afraid of. 
and I'm sort of starting to believe her until I hear this knock at the door. And I, the knocking keeps happening. And there's silence. And then my mum slowly goes up to answer. It's the British soldier. And I'm at that stage where I'm kind of still scared, but curious. So I creep up behind my mum, behind her legs, because I want to see this monster in the cold light of day. <laughs> and to be honest, I'm really disappointed. He's just breathless and boyish, and he's wiping off the camouflage, and he's spluttering out apologies. And he has the gun, but it's slung behind his back, so it's kind of hidden. And his hands, they're empty and open. He's new to this, I can tell. Even as a child, I can tell that. He's a fish out of water in this weird, fucked-up country. And he's just another kid trying to work out what is actually going on in this, this, this chaos. Still, I really want to hear his excuse. He was patrolling for IRA activity in the area, and he didn't realise there'd be kids in the garden. A likely story, I think. But my mum has grown up in this neighbourhood. She saw it at its worst in the 60s and 70s. And when I look at her, I can tell that she not only believes what he's saying, but she actually knows it's true. Bomb plots are normally hatched on these quiet streets, in these leafy suburbs, among these tall green hedges. But still, I am aghast when she invites him in for tea and cake. And my fear, like in a split second, turns to pure, furious indignation. Is she serious? Oh my God, she's actually serious. I really want her to reprimand that soldier like she gives out to us when we like do bad things or give her the troubles. See what I did there? But um, she doesn't. She just kind of doesn't give much away in her expression, but her voice has this note of compassion when she says, oh, not to worry. So anyway, this soldier is on our sofa, drinking our tea, eating our cake. And he's really nervous at first, almost as nervous as any, all of us. But he relaxes. He starts chatting to my, my aunt and my mom. He's new to the city, of course. It's not his first awkward encounter with the locals. No kidding. Um, but they're just chatting about life in Belfast, the kind of funny characters you see in the bars here. And of course, the absurdity of the conflict. And they're just laughing. And I really want to be a grown-up, and I really want to laugh with them. But I can't take my eyes off that gun, which is kind of lazily propped up against the arm of the sofa. And I can see my brother, he's also staring at it, so I don't feel so alone. But then my brother goes, hey, Mr. Army Man, can I see your gun? <laughs> and everyone laughs, but in this kind of really <laughs> nervous way. Um, and of course, the soldier doesn't give him the gun, obviously. He's not a monster, completely. I'm really trying to find a reason to hate this soldier. Um, so I try to you know, use my observation skills as much as possible. Okay, he speaks funny, but that's to be expected because he's English. Um, and also, he, ha he also has this habit of when he's talking he, and eating, he talks with his mouth full and all the crumbs are going all over the sofa and his lap. And normally my mum would be worried about like crumbs being walked into the carpet, but she's not saying anything, so I'm staying quiet. In fact, I'm finding it really hard to really despise this man. He is, he's not so monstrous after all. He has blue, blue eyes and clean teeth. But it's funny because 
from what I understand, there are men in this neighbourhood in Belfast and other neighbourhoods across Belfast who fight about men like him, who say they'll kill us if we don't target them first. But I don't, I, I don't think that. I don't see that when I see this soldier. So what's the big deal? What's the big fuss about in Belfast at all? So the soldier ends his cup of tea and his con conversation with us. He'd better go, he says. When he says that, I guess he's returning to the hedge. I, I, I don't know. Prob <laughs> he's probably returning to the hedge because in Belfast, nothing really ever changes. So we walk him to the door and wave goodbye. And my mum is smiling when she waves back at him, but it fades when his back is turned. And once we're back in the house, she uses that cheery voice again. Well, wasn't that a nice distraction, she says. I love stories from that perspective, the childhood perspective, right? There's what you see as a child and what you understand and what is just outside of your, your sphere of understanding. Who to trust in this case? Her mom? The soldier in the bushes? The soldier is now in the kitchen? Can she trust the soldier in the kitchen because her mom seems to be trusting the soldier in the kitchen? But I find this, the entire setup so... It's so outside of my world experience, and I'm so grateful to have it at the show, to have Jane bring this perspective onto the show. Trust. It's a big word. It's a word we throw around pretty easily, but like, what is it really in a situation as complex as what was, what was just uh, illustrated? Let's move on to our second story. Who have you got for us today, Deb? Jeff Gandell from the archives. This is from June 2017. In terms of trust from the perspective of... Um, an adult who's actually in a vulnerable place. For me, what's happening here is that Jeff is learning to trust himself and his instincts when he wants to kind of fight back. Maybe we should listen to the story. Jeff Gandell is a Montreal-based improviser, writer, storyteller. He's a Sejep teacher. Jeff Gandell also teaches storytelling workshops with Montreal Improv. This story is from June 2017. The theme was On the Edge, and it was recorded at the Mainline Theatre. I always wanted to be a singer. So a few years ago when I did my first one-man show at the Fringe Festival called The Balding, uh, which was directed by Matt Goldberg, uh, my favorite part of the show was when I got to sing the two songs that I had written for the show. Um, it was my rock star moment, my energy just soared in these moments. And I, I did the show in Montreal and I toured it across Canada, and the, the reviews were unanimous. Great show, he can't sing. <laughs> oh, I know. It's sad. Uh, so a couple years ago I figured it's probably a good idea if I take singing lessons, if I'm going to continue to do this kind of thing. So I looked for a singing teacher in the same place I look for everything on Kijiji. Um, and I found this ad that was a really well-written ad and I really connected with it and it, it, it talked about the primacy of blues music and Western music and I wanted to sing blues and it was, it was a really well-written ad and so I, I made an appointment to see this woman, her name was Sylvie, uh, and I went over there the next week and the lessons were in her apartment. It was a small one and a half uh, apartment. So in one room there was like a single bed and a small kitchen and a Casio keyboard, um, music stand. And Sylvie was kind of a middle-aged hippie type 
uh, she had short hair and she was kind of short and she wore you know jewelry and and a, a dress and uh, and we and we start talking about the lessons and she tells me that she's a very spiritual person which I connect with as well because I've recently um, you know decided that I'm a spiritual person as well and so <laughs> it's something you get to decide actually um, and she uh, or I've started calling myself a spiritual person anyway and she tells me about the lessons and she tells me that being a singer is about more than just hitting the note that it's about living the life of being a singer and being passionate and this is all really resonating with me and she tells me about all the famous singers that she's taught and then she asked me to sing something so I sing her something and then uh, she's kind of sitting there after not saying anything and I'm eagerly awaiting a response and she looks up at me and she says you've been hurt before and now you don't trust people <laughs> shocked by this um, because I had just discovered the exact thing the day before in therapy. This is like being a spiritual person. This is kind of something you get to decide. Uh, so I was like, okay, she gets me. She understands me. She's the perfect teacher for me. So I, I happily paid for 16 lessons in advance. They weren't that expensive. And she said, there's no refunds. And I said, I'm no quitter. That's fine with me. So I was, uh, I was really excited to get started with our first real lesson the, the week after. And I went over there. And uh, the first thing we had to do was a vocal exercise. So she had to, she played a note on the keyboard and I had to sing Do Re Mi up from that note. And I thought, you know, I've done a show, a show that had two songs in it. Like, this is really no problem for me. Um, so she did it and I, I sang Do and she's like, you're totally off. And I was like, oh, okay. I, everyone misfires now and then. So, so let's do it again. So we tried again. She's like, you're off. You're totally off. So, oh, okay. So this went on a few times and then she said, I can't do any more with you today. You have to go home and practice. Uh, it had been 10 minutes. I know, oh, it's sad. But you know, she said lessons might not be an hour, and I figured, okay, I'm a teacher, I like homework, I'll go home and practice. So I went home and I practiced Dore Me. I got my keyboard, I got my tuner on my iPad, and I practiced Dore Me over and over again. Uh, I really wanted to impress Sylvie. I wanted to come in there and wow her. It was extremely boring uh, to practice, but I figured I'm, I'm dedicated to this. So I did it, and I went back the next week with my chest puff out, and I was like, I've been practicing, and she's like, we'll see. Um, and so I play the, she plays the note and I go, do, and she says, you're totally off. She said, can you not hear that you're off? And I said, no, I can't hear that I'm off. And she said, you have a lazy ear. And I didn't know ears could be lazy, so I was learning something already. And so this went on and I was still totally off and then uh, she said, you have to go home and practice. And it had been 15 minutes, so I was making progress. Um, Sylvie was a very eccentric teacher. She used to say like these, these funny things, like she would say, you have to stand up straight and the, the sound must come from between your sex and your anus. And yeah, and she said, uh, she used these metaphors that I didn't understand, like she said, the, the, you have to deposit your note in the well. You have to see the, the well and deposit your note in the well. And I had no idea what this meant. <laughs> but I pretended I did. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Um, so, so I tried to do that, so I was visualizing the well, but I couldn't sing and visualize the well at the same time. So I was still totally off. And uh, this would go on and on. And, and it occurred to me after a while that Sylvie was making me very nervous as a teacher. Uh, I, my heart would beat really quickly when I would bike over there and when I'd walk in I would kind of like shrink a little bit. Um, but I thought, you know, this is probably a good thing. If I'm going to sing in front of people I'm going to be nervous. So it's a good thing that my teacher makes me nervous. I had just seen Whiplash, so all of this made sense to me. So I still thought this, I have the perfect teacher, you know. Um, she would also cancel lessons often. She said if I'm in the studio recording it pays more so I, I have to cancel. Or she said it's very hot in my apartment, if it's hot outside I have to cancel. 
Um, so she canceled on me, which I was happy about because I didn't like going there, but also a bit torn because these things were dragging on and on. Um, then I was there during one particularly difficult lesson, and after a, a time where I was like totally off and I was not singing from between my sex and my anus, and uh, no idea where the well was, and she turns to me and she says, this is why I hate teaching beginners. <laughs> oh, I know, oh, it's horrible what I've been through. Uh, she said, this is why I hate teaching. She said, if I could afford to, I wouldn't teach beginners. Now, I'm a teacher, and I know that being a professional teacher, and she wasn't charging much, but she, got, she chose the price, that being a professional teacher means that's the stuff you keep in your head. That's exactly what the money is for, for you to not tell your students that you'd rather not be there. Uh, so I was really discouraged after this lesson, but I thought, I want to finish these lessons. I just want to get through them. Uh, I still wanted to impress her. I still kind of valued, uh, I valued her opinion of my singing. I still look up to her as a singer and as, and as an artist. So uh, I kept going there, and I kept getting more and more nervous and dreading it more and more, and she kept canceling. Um, until one day I was there, uh, during another particularly difficult lesson, I was totally off, and she turned to me and she said, you know, you're never going to be a singer. She said, some people are born with it, I'm born with it, you're not. You have a lazy ear, you're never going to be a singer. And I was dejected, I felt, she's right, I'm never going to be, I can't do that. I was practicing so much, I'm like, I can't fucking do this. And for the first time, I thought about just quitting the lessons. And then something occurred to me. I thought about how she kept telling me that I can't sing and I'm a terrible singer and how she would cancel one out of every two lessons and how she reminded me every class that there were no refunds. <laughs> she was trying to get me to quit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so she could keep my money. And all of a sudden, I didn't care about singing anymore. I just didn't want to let Sylvie win. So I was determined to finish the lessons. And I went back there, and, and, and every time she shrunk a little bit, I felt better, and I was miserable. But the only thing that made me less miserable was how miserable my misery was making her. And I even thought about signing up for another 16 lessons. And I got to three lessons left. I was seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. We were almost there. The lessons had started in March, and this was October. That's how much she was canceling it. So I could see the light at the end of the tunnel when she sends me an email saying, uh, I'm in the studio until February. I'm not available until February. Get in touch with me in February. Oh, that's right, yeah. So this was October. So February was six months away. So I wrote her an email. I said, look, Sylvie, I know there's no refunds. You tell me that every class. But this is ridiculous. Like, if you hadn't canceled one out of every two lessons, we'd have been done a long time ago. Could I have my money back for the three lessons? It was like 50 bucks. It wasn't a lot of money. But again, I didn't want her to win. Uh, so I said, could I get my money back? And so I sent, I sent the email, and I waited for her response. And I was sitting there kind of pressing refresh on my browser for hours. And it was like an abusive relationship. <laughs> and, and finally, I get an email from her. She sends me three words. Let it go. <laughs> So I wrote her back this email. I said, you're not a spiritual person. What kind of spiritual person acts like this? You're a criminal. This is a scam. I'm going to take an ad out under Kijiji under yours saying don't take lessons from this woman. Uh, you're a horrible, horrible person. I thought being a singer was about living the life as a singer. I wrote the pages and pages of this mean stuff. And then I deleted the email. I didn't send it. Uh, and I wrote her back an email with four words of my own. 
See you in February. I love that ending so much. Jeff was just at Vanier College uh, for the 2019 English Department Symposium, and he told this story, and it it killed with my students. Maybe they just like to uh, mistrust teachers or something like that. Well, it is, and the turn that it takes and the decision that he makes to kind of do battle. We, I mean, is this, maybe it's revenge. Maybe it's not about trust at all. But that's, that's how I saw it, was like, no, this is something he's got to do for himself. He's got to stand up for himself here. Love it. I have so much love for this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's one of my favorites. Well, that's it for another episode of Confabulation, the podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with more All True Stories. Thank you so much, Deb. And thank you, Matt. Thanks so much for listening to Confabulation. We're a nonprofit dedicated to the art of true life storytelling. We run monthly autobiographical storytelling shows in Montreal, Toronto, and Victoria. You can learn more about the show and sign up for our mailing list at confabulation.ca or check us out on social media where we're at Confab Stories. Confabulation, the podcast, is produced by our team, Cassandra Tugneri, Carolyn Michaels, Pat McTaggart, Deb Van Slet, Stephen Trepanier, and me, Matt Goldberg. Special thanks to the Conseil des Arts de Montréal for their support of Confabulation. We couldn't do it without you.